Well, um, this is uh, the season that we're going to embark on as a community here. So today we're going to sort of set a groundwork for that. Um, I'll confess that growing up when my friends talked about Lent, like in school, I thought they were saying Lent, you know, like the stuff on your jeans. And I thought there was a metaphor there about like getting rid of the stuff that stuck to you in the spirit. I really, for a while, I thought that was what was going on. Um, the, word, the word Lent actually just comes from the old Saxon, from the old English for lengthen because it, it happens to occur during the season of time that we call spring when the days are getting longer, especially when they're being helped by daylight saving time, right? So that's where the word comes from, but the deeper meaning of the season is a time of practice and preparation. Uh, and we're gonna go further into what it might mean for us uh, as we talk today. But I'm really excited for this community to press into the meaning of the season that we call Lent. And I would just say for you, like regardless of what you believe or don't believe or where you're at on the God thing or the Jesus thing or the Bible thing or the church thing, I would just invite you, like, maybe there's a gift for you in this thing that we call Lent, regardless of that, and maybe you can find your, your own sort of way into it, and we're just going to try to create a space for that to happen for everyone here now. Um, let's start with a story uh, that occurred just this past week. A friend of mine uh, gave me a phone call a little while ago, and he had stumbled into the opportunity to go and meet with someone that I would call an elder. Uh, this is a, a person known for their wisdom and insight, and a person who also happens to be much older. Uh, a person who, whose work has impacted me from a distance from a very long time, but a person I'd never met in person. And so this friend of mine said, do you want to go with me? And I thought, yeah, I, I would like to be the kind of person who, when given the chance to go pursue some wisdom from a person who's known to be a wise person, I, I'd like to be there for that, you know? And by the way, I also thought about how quick I am to put energy or time into being around somebody who's successful or somebody who can bump my status a little bit. Uh, but how much more rare it might be to invest time or energy or money to go and, and sit with someone for the sake of their wisdom. But I really wanted to do that. And so I got on a plane on Tuesday and a couple of flights later I was in New Mexico. And I walked into this very unassuming little building uh, where this elder uh, does his work. And we were sitting there uh, having a long conversation and we talked at length about the ideas that this person has put forward in the world. Uh, this person's a theologian, a Christian, a scholar of sorts. So we talked about the ideas that he's put out in the world, but there was a point in the conversation where things shifted from the ideas to something more personal for him. And it was because my friend, who was sort of leading the conversation, uh, took the conversation somewhere that, that brought this elder to reflect a little bit on his own death. So this guy, he's 75 years old. Last year he had a heart attack. He's living with prostate cancer. And for all those reasons, he's just discovered he's in a season of life where an awareness of the fact that his body will have an expiration date on planet Earth is, is really present with him right now. So we were curious, I mean, this, again, this is a person of like great significance, like a lot of gravitas. We wanted to hear how he was thinking about that, what he expects from that experience, and even theologically, how he thinks about what waits for us on the other side of that experience. And, um, you could tell like things got more personal in that moment in the conversation. And he expressed a lot of, I don't know, about the details, which I really appreciated. Um, but then the question was like, so are you, are you afraid of that experience? Or do you trust that experience? And it's like I could physically see a peace settle in his body. And he just said, you know, every small death in life that I have embraced has enlarged me. He said, every small death in life that I have embraced has enlarged me. 
And so he said, I don't know what exactly to expect from that experience, but I trust that it will enlarge me. And I feel a great peace about that. I thought about that um, since I came home from that trip. When the subject of his death came up in the conversation, I sort of leaned forward on the edge of my seat, not just because he's a person whose wisdom I want to learn from, but also because death has been uh, abnormally close to my family and our lives the last two months. Um, just a little over a month ago, my uncle, who's in his 50s, went in for a hernia procedure, and it should have been pretty common. Uh, in the recovery from the hernia procedure, it was discovered that he had blood clots, so he went back in for a procedure to deal with the blood clots. And then, um, with very little warning, he bled out on the table and he was gone. Sort of a freak accident of sorts in the procedure. So I got on an airplane and flew to Phoenix, and I straddled that awkward line between nephew and pastor and did what I call helicopter pastoring, which is when you drop into a situation and you try to be a good pastor for 48 hours, and then I had to leave and come home. Uh, but that was pretty intense for me and for my mom and my dad, and of course for my aunt who lost her husband and for my cousins. Well, at the meantime, while we were grappling with my uncle's loss, uh, a very dear friend of mine was preparing um, for the possible loss of his mother. This friend of mine's 10 years younger than me, in his mid-20s, uh, but his mother's cancer had come back. And so he'd been making frequent trips back to Ohio on the weekends to be with her. And then um, got the news from him uh, that he had been there with his family and with her when they had to say goodbye. So I jumped in the car and drove to, Chicago, or to Ohio um, to be there for my friend as he buried his mother. And while I didn't know her and it wasn't my own loss, um, you know, when you love someone like a friend and you see them burying their mother, you have a little bit of vicarious grief with them, right? And then... Uh, uh, just after that, then um, we found out that my grandfather was in ill condition and he died in Ohio. Um, my grandfather is like, I think of him as that epitome of like Tom Brokaw calls the greatest generation, you know, just a, like a strong, sacrificial man who had grit like no one I'd ever seen. And his wife, my grandmother, uh, for years now, her dementia had gotten worse and worse and he was just with all of his will going to take care of her, right? Um, but there came a point where he finally <laughs> had to relent from all of his stubbornness and allow my dad and his siblings to take my grandmother to a memory care place where she'd be better cared for because it was becoming really, really daunting for him to take care of her alone. And I, my only read on it, it seems to me that my grandfather, his body was actually done about two years ago, but his will, just the sheer force of his will and his love for her, he was not going to let her down. And so um, he had been fighting every ailment in his body, but staying strong for her so that he could care for her. And it's like the day he found out that she was in a safe place, he faded really quickly, you know? And then he was gone. So our family has had a lot of death around him. My friend um, said goodbye to his mom, and I was there in New Mexico this week sitting with this elder as he talked about his own death and about the idea that there wasn't much to be afraid of there. And I was um, thinking about how it is that we as spiritual communities or churches or Christians think about and work through death. And sometimes what I do when I'm working on a question or, or I'm wrestling with something is I'll Google it. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Google theology, but I'm fascinated by Google sociology. I'm fascinated by what you learn about the ways we think about things when you just plug a few questions into Google or you look at the autocomplete, right? And you find out, like, en masse, as a, as a civilization, 
Like, what are the questions we ask? What's the language that we use for our questions? What kind of things come up when we big the, bring these deep and important questions to the internet, right? And so I was doing a little bit of the poking around, and it struck me as I was Googling things like death and scripture, death and Christianity, death and faith. Granted, I'm, again, I'm not asking Google to teach me what Christianity teaches about those things, better sources. But I am curious, like, what people who are interested in those words are finding, right? And so I'm plugging these things in, and what strikes me is that like, almost every result that pops up when you hover around those topics on the internet, all, like, almost every result that comes up has to do with comforting us. So it's like, here's 27 verses from the Bible that will comfort you if you are near death or if you've lost a loved one, right? And I'm a huge fan of comfort. I, I think it's a good thing to comfort one another in grief. I think the scripture has comforting things to say to us about death. But it strikes me that while like, the vast majority of results that came back on Google were about comfort, that much of what the Bible tries to do with death is actually to confront us. That there, there's a difference between being comforted in the face of death and being confronted with the reality of death. And while I'm a big fan of comfort, it strikes me that much of what the Bible does around death is it actually tries to confront us. It, it tries to keep it in front of us in a way that prevents us from the illusions and the distractions and all of the ways that we try to ignore the fact that this is a reality to being human, right? And I think there might actually be something to be said for the confrontation. Let me take you to an example in the scripture where death is more of a confrontation than a comfort, where it's put in front of the human race. This is from the very, very beginning of the scriptures in the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter three, uh, the Bible tells a story that you've probably heard before about Adam and Eve and how they're placed in a garden where they can enjoy every good thing. And then God says, there's this one tree that you're not supposed to eat from, but they're tempted by the serpent and they eat the fruit from that tree and then God confronts them, right? Well, in that confrontation between God and Adam and Eve, we read God saying to them this, you are dust and to dust you shall return. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's sort of a confrontation, right? Now, um, it's common in Christian theology and in reading the New Testament to work out the relationship between death and another thing, which is sin, and sometimes uh, to articulate the idea that the reason that death is here is because of sin. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah. Okay, I'm not necessarily quibbling with that theology, but I want to observe something else here for a moment, okay? So like you have in the New Testament, you have a writer named Paul saying things like the wages of sin is death. Like that's the reward for sin, death, right? Uh, you have uh, later theologians after Paul, like a few centuries later, a guy named Augustine who works out an idea that he calls original sin. Um, so you have this history of thinking about sin and death together and saying that the one causes the other. But I want to observe something interesting in the book of Genesis. Um, in the book of Genesis, chapter three is often where theologians locate original sin. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit and got expelled from the garden and God said, from dust you came to dust you shall return. That's a normal move for a lot of interpreters to make. Here's the curious thing. The word sin is never mentioned in Genesis three. In the story of Adam and Eve eating the fruit from the garden and being tempted by the serpent, the word sin is never mentioned. In chapter four, when Cain and Abel get into a spat, and there's a lot going on in, in, the, in the fight between Cain and Abel that we could unpack for a very long time, but in the story of Cain and Abel, these are the offspring of Adam and Eve, 
the sons of Adam and Eve, when they get into a spat, that's the first mention of the word sin. It's when God comes to Cain and says, be careful what you do with your anger because sin is crouching at your door in this, in this moment if you don't figure out what to do with your anger, your jealousy, your hatred for your brother right now. So I'm, I'm just observing that in the Genesis text, we don't have the, t- the, the text talking about sin and then talking about death. In the Genesis text, it's actually the other way around. We have the consciousness of death or mortality striking humanity, and then you turn the page and the story moves to sin. Now, I've thought about that for a couple of major reasons. First of all, uh, afford me just a little, a little tangent for a moment here, okay? Um, if you take evolution as a reliable scientific account of the physical processes that led to the life that we see today, if, if you take that to be reliable, then you've got to grapple with the idea that death existed for a very, 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 very long time before humans, homo sapiens showed up, people that we would call capable of moral agency or making sinful decisions or rebelling against God or what is right. So that's something to grapple with. And by the way, I'm a person who takes the evolutionary account of the physical processes that brought us here to be pretty reliable. I think it's not a threat to my faith, and I think it seems to be pretty well vouched for. But in Genesis, again, you don't have sin preceding the mention of death. You actually have the awareness of death preceding the word sin. And I've also thought about how it seems to me that so many of the dark, difficult, ugly, broken things in our lives, if you you pay attention to the dark, difficult, broken, ugly things in our lives and in the world that we are creating, just ask yourself, how much of that mess, how much of that acting out that we do that breaks things, how much can you trace it back? If you dig and dig and dig and go down into the heart, down into the psyche, how much of it has to do with us desperately trying to be immortal and invincible? How much of it has to do with us running from the anxiety that knows that we are dust and to dust we shall return. Is it possible that one of the places that sin comes from is our inability to simply own our mortality and say, yes, we are mortal and frail and that's okay. Think about the last time that you saw something in the news that was ugly and ask yourself, is there a move toward power at work there? Well, isn't power an attempt to be invincible or immortal? Think about um, some of the desperate ways that we try to stay young. I don't mean trying to stay healthy. Staying healthy is great. I'm all for that. But I mean the more pathological ways that we are afraid of becoming old or looking old or being perceived as old. And think about how sometimes that fear, that anxiety leads to ugly things. I'm, um, I'm not trying to construct a systematic theology today. I'm not trying to pick a fight with Augustine. But I am just observing both in the Genesis text and in much of our experience, it seems that our fear of our awareness that we are finite, that we are limited, that we will come to an end, that you might be able to trace that to some of the darker, more broken and difficult things that we do. Some of our compulsions, some of our addictions, some of the ways that we try to numb ourselves or distract ourselves. So if it's true that uh, the ugly things within us break out of our lives into the world around us because we are having a hard time admitting who we are and what we are. 
then would it also be true that owning, claiming, acknowledging, embracing, facing, looking head on the fact that we are human, the fact that we are mortal, could it be that that's the direction to move if we want better, more beautiful things to come, right? Like, like I'm actually wondering, what would happen if, if we as a community like simply made peace with this, embraced this simple but difficult idea, I'm going to die. You're going to die. These bodies expire, and I wonder how powerful it would be to become a community in a world of denial, in a world that's running from that truth, how powerful it would be for a community like ours to own it, to embrace it. Now, I need to make a quick disclaimer here. Um, some members of our community, like every community, uh, might struggle with things like self-harm, um, depression, that might lead to like, suicidal thoughts. As I talk about making peace with our mortality, um, you need to know that's a very different thing than if you're struggling with things like self-harm. And if you're struggling with things like self-harm, uh, you gotta talk to someone, whether it's someone in your life that you trust or someone in this community. And um, the case I'm making is for the embrace of our mortality that enlarges us, not one that destroys us. And so I just wanna make that important disclaimer as I'm working through this idea, okay? Now, um, that mentor, that elder that I sat with, he said, every small death that I have embraced has enlarged me. And it seems that that has prepared him for the death that will be, be actually waiting for him at the end of his physical life on planet Earth, right? And it struck me as he said that, that for people who want to embrace the reality, let the scriptures confront us with the idea that we are going to die. For, for those people who want to do that, we, we can actually bring that dying into our everyday life, into small everyday deaths. We can make it a pattern or a practice in the here and now. And the New Testament refers to this kind of thing all over the place. Let me show you a few examples of the way that the New Testament says that this way of embracing the small deaths is part of, of the life that we are being called to. This is in Matthew 16, for example. Jesus is with his disciples and he says to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow Jesus into the way of being human that we see there, whoever wants to partake in the life that he is making available for us, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Well, what's the cross? It's an instrument of dying. It's a, it's a thing that tells you your life is about to end. He says, take up that mindset, take up that willingness, walk through this life with that kind of posture, embracing the deaths that come along the way. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Or in uh, Galatians, Paul writes, and he's talking about how this has happened to him. He's embraced this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul wasn't waiting for the end of his physical life to embrace his death. He's already done that somehow. Or in Philippians, writing to a community, Paul says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It strikes me as like a particularly like theological irony that when we are desperately trying to be immortal and invincible, 
It's as if we are reaching to be a little bit like God, only to find out that God has willingly decided to be mortal and to come to the end of his physical life on planet Earth. Like we, we miss each other. Like we're trying to climb to the top of a mountain of invincibility, not realizing that the whole time God has been climbing down to the valley of the shadow of death. Like to meet us there in our very human, everyday experience of the small deaths that come along. And it also makes me think, like, if it's true that some of the uglier things that come out of us in our world, in our lives, in our relationships, come from a place where we're trying to be immortal or invincible, when we're afraid to admit our frailty, our vulnerability, our mortality, then what about the beautiful things that have come every time that you or I have been willing to die a little bit? Like, like think about the moments in your life where something true or good or beautiful has emerged from your life or in the midst of your relationships or in a community that you're a part of. Ask yourself every apology that you've offered, every act of forgiveness, every act of reconciliation, every moment when God or spirit was calling you in one direction and your ego was calling you in the opposite direction and somehow you found your way to say no to the ego and yes to where God was calling you. All of the beautiful things that have come out of those moments, weren't they all preceded by a little bit of dying inside? A little bit of embracing your mortality and saying, I've got to get over my ego, my pride, this, this anxious drive inside that's afraid to lay anything down. I mean, isn't it true that the good and beautiful things that have come out of us and come into the world have often been on the other side of embracing our mortality and saying, it's time to die a little bit, because by the way, that's where this story is going anyway, so why not embrace it in the here and now? I think this is an even uh, more important word in the year 2019, when lifespans have been extended by decades, which that means like for the, for the, for the average human being, in, a, in your own biography, death has been placed way farther away from most of your life, right? Like when the lifespan was 40 years old, that horizon was much closer in everyone's consciousness, but as that extends, more of us can live longer and longer in the delusion that it will never happen, right? And not to mention the fact that um, in a lot of ways, death has been relocated outside our everyday lives. And so, as opposed to most of human history, now death happens often in a hospital, for example, right? Not in your bedroom, in your home, where your family is. Um, it just strikes me that like, maybe more than ever, we need to proactively embrace a sober awareness that we're going to die. <laughs> This will lay a groundwork, hopefully not just for the good and beautiful things that happen, like apologizing and reconciling, true generosity, personal sacrifice. This will hopefully lay a groundwork for the practices that we call Christian, um, proactive, intentional ways, like the ones that Dr. Stump's going to teach on Tuesday nights during Lent. This also lays a groundwork um, for the other ideas that we're going to talk about throughout this season. So uh, we're calling this Lenten journey that we're going to go through as a church out of the ashes. Uh, and we're going to talk about the most beautiful things that are hiding in our most difficult experiences. This is actually, I think, in the very spirit of what Lent is. There's a writer named Bobby Gross who's written a book on the Christian year, which is another word for this particular calendar that we follow. And Gross says it uh, like this. Each year the season of Lent asks us to embrace a spiritual gravity a downward movement of soul, a turning from self-sufficiency and sinfulness. In such quiet turning, we are humbled and thus made ready to receive from God a fresh and joyous grace. So we're gonna talk about the difficult experiences of being human, first-person encounters that feel like, for example, I'm wrong. 
I'm on the wrong path. I'm doing the wrong things. We're going to talk about disappointment, that moment when your soul cries out and said, I had hoped for something different. We're going to talk about doubt, the sometimes terrifying experience that causes us to say, I don't know. I don't know about the most important things. I don't know about the things that I I thought I did know. We're going to talk about doubt. And today we're talking about uh, mortality, the fact that we can say as a community, I'm going to die. Uh, we want to come to two rituals or practices or sacraments today to help us embrace that. Um, the first one is sort of often the threshold that a community crosses as it enters into Lent, and it's the imposition of ashes. Now, a lot of communities did this on Wednesday. It's called Ash Wednesday. You might have seen friends or coworkers walking around with an embarrassing little smudge on their forehead, right? Uh, we're going to do that today. Um, now, as I describe this, by the way, there's, nobody has to do this. It's simply sort of an option if you'd like to be a part of this in a moment, okay? So relax. Um, now, maybe you're thinking, gosh, I don't know if I want to, like, be walking around town afterwards with, with the ash on my forehead because it's the wrong day, you know? It's not Ash Wednesday, right? Well, a couple of options. If anybody gives you a hard time about that, you could tell them, uh, I'm not sure if you knew this, but there's actually great diversity among Christian calendars in the church in the East and the West, and the Orthodox Church has a completely different calendar for Easter anyway, so deal with it. Or, or just tell them our church is a little weird and we like it. Okay? Uh, so the ashes will be offered, um, and I'm actually grateful for such a profoundly earthy ritual, something physical and tangible. A member of our team, if, if you'd like to be a part of that, will look you in the eye, and they'll simply say, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. And as they speak those tender words to you, um, they'll make the sign of the cross and an ash on your forehead. Uh, That'll be the ashes. And then we'll also um, have the experience of Eucharist available to us today. And Eucharist will be a part of our gatherings every week during Lent, like it was last year. And I I don't know uh, of a better pairing, if you will. Eucharist reminds us that God himself has entered into death And we've discovered in Christ that the death that he entered into didn't diminish him, and in fact, it enlarged him. And in some mysterious way, it seems that his death has also enlarged us. And so we'll come to the table uh, for the bread and the cup, and you'll also have the chance, if you'd like, uh, to receive the ashes. Uh, When we do uh, communion, the way that'll go is you'll be able to get up out of your seat, um, and you go to one of the corners, and there'll be somebody there to serve you, and you can simply hold out your hand. You don't have to take anything at the table, and they'll put a piece of gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free bread in your hand, and they'll tell you the body of Christ broken for you. Hold on to it for a moment, step over, and somebody will hold out a cup, and they'll remind you the blood of Christ shed for you. And you can take the bread and you can dip it in the cup, and then you can take and eat. And then when that's done, if you'd like, you can also step uh, a couple steps over uh, to receive ashes imposed on your forehead. Um, Christian Wyman is another writer, another voice that I've been paying attention to in this season. Wyman's a poet. I recommend reading everything he's written. It's slow going reading, but it's so worth it. And Wyman wrote a memoir a few years ago called My Bright Abyss. And Wyman's a person who has recently sort of found his way uh, to Christian faith. He's also a person who's been um, dealing with an incurable and very rare form of cancer. So he's been in and out of the hospital and he's had bone marrow transplants and a lot of really painful experiences. And in his life, death has been close at hand. And I was reading the book, not, not intentionally sort of aligning themes of death in my life. Uh, not that morbid. Um, 
but I found myself reading this book while my family was saying goodbye to a lot of loved ones and then as I was sitting with this elder in New Mexico and he reflected on the end of his life and as we were preparing for Lent, which is a season for confronting our limits. And um, he says this thing there that just, it was echoed by that mentor in New Mexico and to me it might be everything we are trying to say today. He said, what if, it, what if dying isn't you know, the diminishment of us ultimately, but rather, what if we are dying into the life that one has loved rather than following, falling irrevocably away from it? What if to die is to die into the life that you have most deeply loved, to find that you are enlarged in the act? And if that's the case, then wouldn't we want to begin learning how to do that in the here and now? So I want to invite those uh, who want to serve you today to come forward to the stage for communion. And I'm going to serve them, and then when I'm done serving them, we're actually going to take just a, a moment of silence, and we're going to put that, that confrontation back on the screen. You are dust, and to dust you will return. And we'll let that silence uh, sit for a couple of moments, and then when the silence is done, Dan will lead us in a brief prayer. It will be on the screen so that we can make it our prayer together as a community. And then uh, when the prayer is done, you'll be free to get up out of your seat if you like to go to one of the corners for the table or the ashes. Let me remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, this cup represents my blood. But you'll never have to wonder if God is present in our mortality or death because we've seen in Christ that's exactly where he arrives. And so he says, this is also the promise of faithfulness. It's the cup of a new covenant, which means you don't have to doubt or wonder whether God will be with you in the darkest, most difficult moments. His faithfulness will see us through even there. So God, I pray these would be for us the life of Jesus given away. I pray that we would trust that even as he was enlarged in his death, that we are enlarged in our dying. So I pray that we would, this Lenten season, become a people who can say, with peace, I'm going to die. And I pray that in that sentiment, our hearts would open up. We would trust you more deeply. And we would walk more humbly and bravely. And that we too would be enlarged. I pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Church, we'll just take a moment to sit and reflect on this confrontation and then Dan will lead us in a prayer and then you'll be free as you'd like to get up out of your seat come forward for either the table or the ashes.
if you'd like, just open your hands in your lap as an outward way of offering this prayer up. And let's read this together. Almighty God, you have created us out of the dust of the earth. Grant that these ashes may be to us a sign of our mortality and penitence. Grant that this Eucharist may be to us a sign of your loving kindness, that we may remember that it is only by your gracious gift that we are given everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You're free to move around the room to receive the Eucharist and ashes. So may you discover that every act of dying enlarges you. May you remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.